As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, uh, I, I know there's a lot to talk about when it comes to the recent market turmoil, but I have to say there is one thing that stands out to me, and that is what we've seen in the U.S. Treasury. Can I just can I just back up for one second? I just had a thought. You know what would be funny when, the, well, I don't, I don't know if funny is exactly the right word here. Okay. But it would be very interesting to compile a complete compendium of all of our podcast intros over the last couple months and through this as things get crazier and crazier. Because I feel like in the beginning, it was like, well, let's talk a little bit about disruptions to the Chinese supply chain. And then we're at the point of, Let's talk about how suddenly the safest asset in the world isn't trading like how it's supposed to be. And I feel like we could track the course of the <laughs> entire crisis just by uh, comparing our little intros here uh, day after day. So maybe that's a project we'll do one day. Yeah, uh, definitely not funny, but probably noteworthy. That's for sure. Right, not funny. <laughs> But, Darkly funny, maybe. Yeah, I don't know why I'm laughing, actually. Um, okay, but you're exactly right, because the crazy thing about the big sell-off in the Treasury market, uh, people complaining about a lack of liquidity in the Treasury market, is that it is supposed to be the most liquid market in the world and um, a safe asset in times of turmoil. It's supposed to be cash-like, and we haven't necessarily seen that over the past few weeks. Right. This is a, a very key and important thing to understand, which is that U.S. Treasuries, they have the full faith and credit of the United States in a normal stressful scenario, in a normal period where people are worried about the economy or worried about, um, you know, whatever, worried about the financial system, because they are uh, almost, they're essentially money, money that pays an interest rate, People tend to buy them and people tend to hoard them during dark times. But what we've seen in recent weeks is such an extreme dislocation and such extreme anxiety that even an asset that's arguably the safest asset in the world, U.S. Treasuries, has at times being, uh, been gotten sold. Yeah. Even at times it's perceived as not being safe enough. And uh, understanding why that is, the mechanics of our financial markets, or understanding why there have been periods of stress where they've gotten sold can really tell us a lot 
about the plumbing of the U.S. financial system? Well, I think the issue is not only have U.S. Treasuries sold off, but the actual selling process wasn't as smooth as many people might right. have expected. So, for instance, we saw bid-ask spreads in off-the-run treasuries much, much higher than they would normally be. But even on-the-run securities uh, were higher as well. And market depth, basically across the treasury curve, really plunged um, all the way back, I think, to the 2008 crisis lows. And as we've discussed on previous episodes, the thing about U.S. Treasuries is they're basically the funding market for everything in the global financial system. So if you have trouble in treasuries, if you have illiquidity, and if you have a sell-off, then it can feed into all sorts of things, including financial conditions. Uh, And that's probably the way that it starts to affect the real economy as well. So we're going to be talking about the U.S. Treasury market. We're going to be talking about plumbing issues. Uh, but the thing to keep in mind is that all of this really impacts the pain now being felt across Main Street. And I just want to, as we have to do these days, we didn't have used to have to do it so much. But, be, you know, we always have <laughs> to have this caveat in the beginning of every episode where we point out the exact date that we're recording this. Because, again, things can change so much by the time recording has happened so the time people listen to it. We were recording this on Tuesday, March 24th. And I also want to just uh, point out the Fed has already done a number of things to ease some of this tension a little bit. So we'll talk a little bit more about what the breakdown was, what the Fed has already done to uh, relieve some of these tensions we're seeing in the Treasury market, in the funding market. And of course, whether it's enough and what that tells us about how the system works. But just again, whenever you're listening to this, Tuesday, March 24th, uh, 9 a.m. Eastern time is when we're recording this. (laughs) It's kind of worrying that we have to provide the hour nowadays as well. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, well, without further ado, uh, we're going to talk to someone who has been on top of a lot of the troubles in the Treasury market uh, for some time. He's someone whose research I've been following closely for years now, and I have to say he's really come out on top in the recent volatility. His stuff has been excellent, and uh, lots of people are reading it. Uh, Josh Younger is a strategist over at JP Morgan. Thanks so much for coming on, Josh. Thanks for having me. Josh, I just want to, uh, I just for listeners, before we get started, I want to point out several people have suggested in the past um, that uh, we should have you on. So I'm really excited about this. And of course, your name came up in one of our uh, best episodes that we did with Brad Setzer, where we talked about uh, the Taiwanese life insurers and how they were hedging their uh, currency risk. He mentioned that you were one of the best on this. So you are definitely a sort of a longtime uh, high wish list guest for uh, for us and for a lot of our listeners. So really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I'm excited to be on. I'm, I'm a fan of the show. So it's always it's always great to, to participate. All right. Awesome. So, Josh, just to begin with, I want to start out with uh, the troubles that we've seen in the Treasury market. So I spoke a little bit about the liquidity issues, but I wondered if we could maybe zoom in on one thing in particular, which was this notion of uh, levered U.S. Treasury trade. So one thing that happened recently uh, in the market sell-off was that we suddenly got uh, a big difference between futures contracts for U.S. Treasuries and the cash U.S. Treasuries. Can you explain exactly why that happened? Yeah, sure. So with anything like this, a crisis of this magnitude, it always starts in a place you really recognize immediately, and then it accelerates in a place you didn't really expect. 
Uh, and so back in 2008, that was the subprime mortgage market was the accelerant. And in this case, uh, the accelerant turned out to be uh, not a not a risky asset, not credit markets, but but like like you mentioned earlier, you know, risk free assets, things with no credit risk, treasury bonds. And so the question is, sort of, why was this divergence that you mentioned really important, and where did it come from? So you know, the the initial phase of this was really a shift in fundamentals. So any economist will tell you that long-term interest rates should have a lot to do with long-term potential growth and uh, to some extent a flight to quality. And as the, as the COVID-19 outbreak accelerated, there was a real shift in expectations. This is real fundamentals here. You know, growth expectations came down. Uh, the, the set of risks around those growth expectations increased. And so there was a natural flight to quality and interest rates naturally go lower, especially as the Fed starts to cut rates. So the question is, you know, how can uh, you access the market? Like how effectively can you access the market? And treasuries have usually been this highly liquid, you know, cash-like asset that trades at very tight bid to ask, very low transaction costs. The, the issue arose really from the, initially the velocity of this move because expectations were changing so rapidly that you had two things happen. The first is it's just very hard to be the buyer to the sellers and the seller to the buyers if prices are moving around all over the place every day. It's just a very difficult exercise. And so that means your willingness to, to participate in those transactions is a little less. That's particularly true of high frequency traders uh, who are really trying to monetize the very small difference between the bid and the ask price. And when things are highly volatile, there's this risk that you know, a bunch of orders you had outstanding that you thought weren't necessarily going to get hit end up getting hit because the price just moves rapidly. And so high frequency traders are something like 80% of liquidity in the treasury market. Uh, and that dropped to, to 30 or 40% at times when, when prices were moving around uh, that violently. In that kind of environment, really there's a flight to liquidity among products. So we, we think of this as liquidity tiering. And if I need quick access at low transaction cost, uh, futures are the best outlet for that. Just go to the exchange. Treasury futures are going to be the tightest bid ask, the lowest transaction cost, the largest size, the, the biggest group of participants. Uh, mostly because they don't require balance sheet and they're, they're traded on an exchange. So they're, they're pretty transparent in their pricing. And so because rates were moving lower, you know, lower yields, higher prices, uh, the futures led that move and they started to diverge a bit from the bonds into which uh, you can deliver the futures contract. So you think of a treasury futures contract, it's just like an oil contract. You have an agreement to sell at some future date, which gives you economic exposure to the price of that thing. And in the case of treasuries, you have a bond that's part of a deliverable basket. And at the expiry of the future, I give the bond to whoever bought, uh, to whoever I sold the future to. Um, so in principle, those things should be really tightly correlated, uh, just simply because I could hold the futures contract to expiry and deliver the bond. So I have like a guaranteed buyer for my bond. Um, but over the course of that period before expiry, you can get these sharp discrepancies. And in this case, because of the liquidity value of that futures contract, they started to richen relative to the cash bonds. That could have been contained. That's happened in the past. That's pretty common, actually. There's sort of a, an old adage in, in treasury trading that if you don't know why prices are moving, you just say it's futures led because that's the sort of most <laughs> opaque part of the market. Uh, so when prices are going down, futures prices tend to go down more. And when, future, when prices are going up, futures prices tend to go up more. Um, in this case, uh, it was a little more severe than, than was typical, but it wasn't completely outside the range of possibility. 
but it did put a lot of pressure on two groups, which are key to this whole thing. The first is the relative value active manager community who really are holding a lot of positions where they're long the bonds and short the futures contract. And the second is the dealers themselves, because when they are asked to bid on author on treasuries, it's, it's hard to find the buyer for that bond immediately. And so the tendency is to sell a futures contract to reduce your exposure as quickly as possible. And so both hedge funds and dealers were in this very large futures basis position, by which we mean they own the bonds generally on a levered basis, and they're short the futures contract. So when the futures contract richens relative to the bonds, uh, they, they face losses. There's a lot I want to break down here, but talk to us about the um, significance of the discrepancy that always exists basically in any market between an on-the-run treasury and an off-the-run treasury. So I take that a freshly, the treasury issues an auction, a fresh auction of 10-year treasuries, those are on the run. But a previous 30-year auction that was done 20 years ago, it's the same length, it's technically should trade around uh, the same price as a 10-year auction today, would be less liquid. And there are uh, entities that take advantage of these discrepancies. Talk to us a little bit about the mechanics of why that phenomenon uh, exists, and then why that continue, why that sort of distress that we've seen of late this dash for liquidity exacerbated that. Yeah, so generally speaking, those discrepancies are pretty small. Right. Uh, they, they arise from a bunch of different things, but in the case that you're talking about, if you had an old 30 year, originally 30 year bond, it's rolled down to 10 years, it probably had a much higher coupon back in the day. And so rates are lower now than they were 10 years ago. Uh, and that means that that bond is trading at a high premium. Right? So when rates go down and the coupon stays the same, there's a lot of value in that say 4% coupon, if today's coupon would be two or 1% or even today even lower potentially. So uh, it's gonna, not gonna be $100 for, for uh, the bond, it's gonna be more. And so there are some participants that don't like to buy premium bonds uh, because it doesn't have as friendly accounting treatment or mm. they don't wanna put up that much cash for the same income, right? The yield is the same, the dollar price is different. So uh, there, there, are other, there, there are different incentives that people face both economically and accounting and otherwise. And so there might be less demand for that bond than the on-the-run treasury, the on-the-run tenure, even though the maturities are the same, the issuer is the same, et cetera. So those little features matter. Um, and the liquidity in the on-the-run tends to be better just because we, we had an auction, we know we're priced, right. and there's a lot of it outstanding. Um, one, of, one of the issues you run into with off-the-runs is the Fed has maybe bought up a bunch of this bond too. So you don't really have a ton of, of pricing transparency. So all these little things matter. Under normal circumstances, it's worth a couple hundredths of a percentage point, which for some people in the market is a lot. Um, but in general, it's really a very small pricing difference. And, and, and that reflects the fact that at the end of the day, these are really the same instrument fundamentally. It's just these right. small differences change the price. Uh, what we've seen recently is much larger discrepancies in the pricing and especially volatility in those discrepancies. So the issue hmm. for a dealer is less whether or not this bond is trading at a lower price than you would expect given the yield on some more recent liquid issue. It's the fact that if those prices are moving relative to each other rapidly, it's very hard to manage the volatility in their, in their book because generally speaking, a dealer is going to be long owning a bunch of these off-run issues and they're going to try to hedge their first order risk which is just the level of rates with something much more liquid 
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So just going back to the levered U.S. Treasury trade that we were discussing, I mean, you mentioned that a lot of these relative value players were obviously borrowing money. They were levered in that position. I I guess the clue is in the name of the trade, levered U.S. Treasury trading. Um, And you also mentioned the dealers being less able to intermediate some of those trades. Can you talk about the relationship between hedge funds and dealers and uh, where the repo market actually comes into this? Yeah, totally. So the repo market comes in simply because these price discrepancies are very small. So if you want to make a certain amount of money, you have to take out loans. You need to lever it up. And so that was generally the case. That's been the case for a very long time. Uh, There's a couple of big differences now, and it arises from the interaction of markets and regulatory changes and the way that banks have been incentivized to manage their own balance sheets. So one of the big lessons of the crisis in 2008 uh, was clearly too big to fail as a problem. And so the regulatory suite that was introduced was partly meant to address this too big to fail issue. And in doing so, we need to define bigness because that's not an obvious thing to define. The easiest way to think about it is simply size. And it doesn't really matter what you own. You could own just treasuries, and and that's a low-risk asset, but we don't want to risk weight assets anymore if we're trying to control bigness in general. So we want to think about it holistically so that we want to put a limit on leverage in general at banks. And the implication of that is that the the space on your balance sheet taken up by anything has value because you're using it instead of doing something else. And in particular for a bank, it means you have to think about your balance sheet ahead of time. You need to plan ahead. Uh, Increasing your leverage as a dealer to take on more treasury bonds in your inventory, that didn't necessarily add to your cost of capital. But in the case of a a bank now, we, we have to allocate balance sheet because it's a scarce commodity. And so we need to think ahead. That means you have to plan ahead, which means you have to make allocations in advance. So generally speaking, the, the strategy has been to look at a list of clients, think about how much they've utilized balance sheet in the past, uh, how they've utilized balance sheet, and repo is, is, uh, is definitely the most significant source of that usage. And so you say, look, you used a billion dollars last year, we'll give you a billion dollars this year. You used $2 billion last year, we'll give you $2 billion this year. And if you don't use it, well, you might not get as much next year, which is a very reasonable way to think about it. Use it or lose it. I just think of it as a budgeting exercise. Uh, So that created a different set of incentives that were less economic. If I'm a relative value trader, I've got two things that I need to think about. One is, what is the set of actual opportunities, the economic incentives? Which bonds are trading at a price that's too low versus other bonds? And what bonds are trading at a price that's too high relative to other bonds? How am I going to make money? Uh, The second thing is, how do I maintain access to the leverage I need to make those trades interesting in the first place? So if the opportunity set is not particularly appealing right now, how do I make sure that I'm using my balance sheet, my balance sheet allocation, simply to have access to it when something more interesting comes up in the future? And so one way to do that 
is to find a trade that has limited downside. It's almost an arbitrage, if not a zero limited downside position. It uses a lot of balance sheet, uh, and it's something I'm familiar with in general. And so that's where this, this futures basis position comes in because right. it is balance sheet intensive. So I'm going to buy a bond. I'm going to lever it with repo. And then I'm going to sell the future against it. And the way I think about it, worst case scenario, I'll just give the bond to whoever bought the future for me at expiry. So I have limited downside and I've, I've taken up that, that allocation. So before we uh, get to how everything started breaking down a little bit more, I want to go back to one quick thing you said, which is, you know, part of the post crisis shift in the uh, sort of regulatory regime was to try to avoid too big to fail, move risk away from the banking sector. And so now we have all of these uh, you know, uh, non-bank entities uh, engaging in all of these trades. And you know, so far there's a claim, and we uh, talked about this before, there's a claim that maybe if you look at what's going on in the market, there's some vindication of uh, the post-crisis regulations because although there's a lot of fragility in the financial markets. So far, there is not particularly much concern about the banks themselves. Why does it make sense, just just for this, just for my own edification, why does it make sense to count risk-free assets, treasuries, against any entity's balance sheet when, uh, when evaluating size? Does that make sense? Yeah. So just being bigger makes you more complicated if, if you've got big issues. So in the case of, of Lehman, a lot of the disruptions that were caused by the bankruptcy were not necessarily just their credit portfolio. It was unwinding the whole institution. Hmm. So you know, they had a very large swap book that was mostly collateralized with stuff like treasuries and cash. Uh, and that was such a large position to move to somebody else. I mean, you have to, you have to find someone else to take the other side of those trades. Um, that's a very complicated exercise. This is why right. when you look at things like global systemically important banking uh, scores, which are used to evaluate capital surcharges and other things, basically an assessment of cost to being big uh, to, to society. It's not just size, it's also complexity. Right. So if I'm, if I'm relatively small, but highly complex, and, and that's Lehman was another great example of that. It was not the biggest bank in the world by any measure, but it was highly complex. Uh, that creates issues as well for markets in the event of a disorderly online. So it's both size and complexity. Yeah, it's all these different components of bigness, which is why I'm sort of not calling it size. I'm calling it bigness because bigness takes on many forms. And, and one of them is simply the size of the institution. The other is the risk they take, just like back in the day. Um, and, and there's other things like my reliance on short-term wholesale funding, my complexity, uh, the, the level of exposure to things like exotic derivatives, things like that, which can be, mm -hmm. uh, which can be very disruptive if, if things go bad. Okay, so we've sort of touched on the levered U.S. Treasury trade uh, and, and what was happening there, but describe for us just how badly things actually went in the U.S. Treasury market over the past few weeks. Yeah, so, so over time, this position got quite large simply because people wanted to reserve balance sheets. So the, the situation I'm describing before where I'm doing Treasury basis trading simply to park balance sheet and maintain my my access to it, that grew to a very large position. So at most, it was probably, it, it was a, as much as two, $600 billion. We think it's not necessarily that large, and that's just from public data. But even if it was half of that, that's a $300 billion levered position that is non-economic. 
And under normal circumstances, that would be fine. It would actually reduce the risk of, of that kind of levered position. But, but two things started going wrong. The first was this liquidity tiering led to mark-to-market losses on the futures basis position because futures were outpacing treasuries as rates declined. And that was, again, mostly about fundamentals. It was mostly about a shift in the economic outlook and a very rapid shift in how people price interest rate risk and things like that. So that was, I wouldn't say expected, but understandable uh, and expected under these circumstances. And there was a, a, it was at least a sense that at worst, like, like we talked about before, I, I could just deliver the bond at the expiry of the futures contract. My downside was limited. I'm not going to actually realize these mark-to-market losses. It's just a passing thing. And I just have to be a little patient and, and, and weather it for a few weeks. Hmm. Uh, the problem became, as more of these banks started to do work-from-home arrangements, operational risk started to be an important consideration, which is to say uh, these levered positions are very operationally intensive simply because you have to source funding. There's a lot of underlying transactions to getting that much repo leverage in the system. When everyone's at their desk, that's not a problem at all. It might be a little bit of an operational cost, but it's something that can happen quite easily. But as everyone's starting to migrate to work from home, there was a concern that those mark-to-market losses, which in theory are passing, might end up being realized simply because the, the operational issues forced me out of a position at a bad level. And, and that became a risk to manage, not because it was necessarily happening, because A, if I think it might happen, I might want to reduce my exposure, especially if it's not an economically driven position in the first place. Um, and B, and this is a financial markets thing that happens a lot, I might be worried that the next guy thinks it might happen. So I want to be hmm. there first. So the, a, the perception, so the perception that operational risk was important and to me and potentially to others uh, caused a little bit of an acceleration in that process at precisely the wrong time because that was when dealers were already using most of their balance sheets for the activity that already occurred. And all of a sudden you'd have an influx of selling from these highly levered positions. The important thing here is if you take even small losses on a futures basis position, most of them are levered 50 to one. So you could end up eating through capital pretty quickly. And so there was an added incentive to reduce exposure to that. That involves the sale of bonds to dealers who are now taking even more balance sheet. And that created a bit of a vicious cycle that infected other areas of the treasury market and caused market debt to plummet even more. So just to press on on this idea of operational risk, uh, because Clearly, it it was on a lot of people's minds, and I actually wrote a little bit about this at the time based on your research. And one of the pushbacks I got uh, from some readers was that operational risk wasn't really a thing uh, in the financial system because banks all did, you know, exercises and stress tests, and they were all supposed to be able to work remotely from home, and it just wasn't as big an issue as uh, some people were making it out to be. What would you say in response to that criticism? So it may not be, it may not end up being a significant risk. It's more about the perception of those risks and the willingness mm. of particularly a levered position that's already taken losses to, to rely on, on those operational issues. So I, I guess the way I would think about it is it, it, if the perception is that this might be a problem, and I totally agree that stress testing is an important part of this, that planning for these types of scenarios is a big part of it. Banks are much better capitalized than they used to be. They have many more people in the operational positions. They're much more efficient in doing so. And 
uh, in principle, they had plans for work from home, but if, if it all goes according to plan, then it's no problem and business as usual, if we're close to it, if it goes wrong, I have a much bigger problem, especially because at best, I'm not even looking to make money on these trades. So I'm trying to maintain access to balance sheet. I'm not necessarily trying to put on a large directional position. So the, the upside is limited or zero and the downside becomes very large. So I'm totally fascinated by this. Uh, so obviously, from a just sort of pure abstract markets perspective, what we know that over the last several weeks uh, has been this historic uh, attempt to grab cash or grab liquidity in any scenario. And we see this from individuals. We see this from companies. We see it from companies drawing down revolving credit lines. We know it exists. Uh, it's and uh, everyone people we've talked to say they've never really seen anything like this. So that that accelerates selling that blows out some of these trades because okay you know it is not time to we need to sell treasures we need to get uh, liquid assets. Talk to us a little bit more about the specific operational concerns because I don't think many people understand this at all and I know Tracy just asked you about this and you mentioned it but when you say that just from an operational standpoint executing these trades, obtaining the liquidity you need to hold on to the trade until they become profitable uh, is necessary. Just talk to, like, what does that involve? What's that like? What, 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 what makes it uh, 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 operationally intensive to hold on to uh, the trade? Yeah, so really, it's because a lot of this funding tends to be overnight. So repo markets are very strongly skewed towards overnight funding. Part of that is because it's easier for banks to, to do overnight funding. It's, it's harder to have funding that's locked over statement dates and things like that when, when all of these regulatory charges are assessed. Uh, and so if you keep your, the funding you offer as, as a lender overnight, you have a lot more flexibility going forward. And that means that the client side is gonna be pushed in the same direction. That, that's the accommodation that's made. The problem is to, to roll your trades overnight, you have to do no trade every day. And uh, there's a risk that there's no one on the other side of the phone. And, hmm. and we saw this most acutely in, in 2001. Excuse me, just, just to go back, you mean phone literally, right? Literally, yeah. Um, and maybe call forwarding doesn't work. Right, so people who have this view that like all markets are just done over the computer, you enter in uh, some keys and you make a trade, this is a key part of the financial plumbing uh, over the phone. Yeah, a lot, of this, a lot of stuff still happens over the phone or, or at a minimum over chat or things like that. Right. And, and there's a confer conference that go back and forth. It, it, banking is still a very, or, or dealing is still a very paperwork right. intensive business. Even if that paper is, is digital, it goes back and forth a lot. And so it's A, to have someone on the other side of the phone and, and B, to, to make sure there's someone to put a price on it. No, I only ask that because again, I do think a lot of people have this imag imagination that it's all algos and keystrokes and logging into an account. And uh, I think unimportant, uh, facet to uh, drive home. Totally. And there are parts of the market that are very electronic, but right. these things are plumbing oriented, tend, tend not to be. Got it. Okay. So just to sum up, we had this levered treasury position or uh, basically a basis trade up between the futures and the cash contracts that got strained in the recent route, partly because dealers weren't able to come in and intermediate through the repo market. And uh, at the same time, we had all these liquidity strains like huge bid ask spreads and things like that emerging in what, again, was supposed to be the most liquid market 
in the world. Uh, fast forward a little bit, and we have seen this issue pop up with the Federal Reserve. And in fact, Jerome Powell was talking about what had happened in the Treasury market in one of his emergency Sunday announcements. What do you think about the Fed's moves so far? How much of this is on their radar? Are they understanding the concerns correctly? And are they doing the right things to fix it? Yeah, so they're definitely aware of it. They're definitely responding with the kind of magnitude they need to. And it's it's interesting to think about these asset purchases that they've announced. So initially, it was $500 billion uh, of treasury purchases at an unspecified pace, and now it's essentially unlimited. The, the reason why they're responding like that is not because it's QE in the usual sense. I, I think Powell was asked if this is QE, and he basically said, call it whatever you want. Uh, QE is quantitative easing is, uh, is, is really a monetary policy tool to take term premium out of rates and incentivize people to take credit risk. So when you, when you think about investing in fixed income products, I can take term risk, I can lock my money up for longer, I should receive some sort of premium for that, or I can take credit risk in, in the sense that I might not get my money back. And so if you reduce the returns I get simply by locking up my money for longer, well, maybe I want to, might want to do take more credit risk. And that was the original intent of quantitative easing. This is not about that at all. One, because the treasury curve is already quite flat. There's very little term premium. In fact, right. by, by many measures, it's negative. So we certainly don't need to take term premium out of the curve. It's much more about operational and market structure issues. And they're, they're quite clear on that. So the, the question comes up, why respond with this kind of size to something that really what we've been talking about is a group of relative value hedge funds, the market making in treasuries specifically, and all pretty arcane topics. I mean, this has been a pretty technical conversation. So why is the Fed doing unlimited QE to address this rather technical issue, which is important to a lot of people, but not necessarily to most participants in financial markets? So, of course, there have been several different uh, Fed operations that we've seen just over the last week. So, again, today is March 24th. Yesterday, March 23rd, was when we saw the... um, the uh, announcement of all kinds of new lending operations, plus the alphabet soup of new programs and the unlimited QE. The Sunday before that was when Powell made the surprise announcement to cut rates to basically zero and the $700 billion in asset purchases, which almost didn't do anything uh, for risk assets. And the week before that, we saw a technical announcement out of the New York Fed talking about how they were uh, massively expanding the repo operations. When that New York Fed announcement came out, they're like, okay, I don't know, this is QE. This is a major uh, boom for these uh, relative value funds that we've been talking about, the ones that arbitrage the difference in pricing between uh, futures and treasuries, and this sort of uh, saved them to some extent or really protected them. And what I'm wondering is, do we need them? Like, are 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 they essential to the way the financial system works? that we need entities out there levering themselves 50 to 1 to take advantage of minor price discrepancies between off-the-run treasuries and futures? Or is this just, uh, could we live without these entities uh, performing this function? We certainly need somebody to police these relationships, but the, the moment is less about what we need in the financial system and more about what we don't need, which is a disorderly and rapid unwind of these positions. So what the Fed is doing is they're putting up fire breaks and they're saying, I wanna isolate this issue to a certain segment of the market and I really wanna prevent 
delevering in one sector from turning into delevering in other sectors, in particular, delevering the banking system more broadly. So the risk was that the pace and ferocity of this unwind took up so much dealer balance sheet that they were unable to intermediate other markets as well. And so you started seeing issues in credit markets, particularly in short-term credit markets. Uh, you also saw this dislocation becoming so acute that you could do riskless, both credit risk-free and interest rate risk-free unlevered trades and make more doing that, buying the bond unlevered, selling the futures. You can make more money doing that than buying bank CP. So you had two risks. One was in severe intermediation frictions in other markets, and the other being a demand shock to the credit market, particularly the short-term credit market, which is really the lifeblood of a lot of institutions. And if you follow that chain, there's a scenario that starts to become not necessarily base case, but certainly more likely, where corporations lose access to capital markets because of these market structure issues, and they're forced to draw on their bank revolvers. And that becomes an incentive for banks to start selling assets to fund those draws. And we've actually seen over 130 billion of those draws already based on public information. So that's when you encircle the banking system, when you force corporations who need liquidity for real economy reasons to tap their banking lines right. rather than capital markets. And now banks have to sell assets. So now I have hedge funds selling assets, credit funds selling assets, banks selling assets. And there's a, a risk that's materialized in part where you start seeing the redemption of money market shares. So prime money market funds, particularly those owned by institutions, have lost more than 20% of their assets in a week. And that's the kind of scenario where you start to see echoes of the 2008 crisis. Right. We're not there yet, but that, that was the epicenter of 2008 was this run on the prime funds. And, and you're starting to see some contagion from, again, a relatively arcane world through the, the accelerant of the dealer complex and the constraints that they have and into the credit markets. Right. And a lot of the programs that the Fed has announced so far are, I don't want to say ripoffs, but replicants of some of the stuff that we saw in 2008. So they have announced a plan to support money market funds, and they've also announced another iteration of the asset purchase program, uh, TAF, which I'm sure anyone who was around in 2009 will remember that one. Um, one thing they haven't done, and maybe this is important since we're talking so much about the balance sheet constraints for dealer banks, but one thing they haven't done is loosen regulatory constraints on banks. And I just wonder if that's something that you would ever expect to happen. Here in Hong Kong, we have seen some of this. The financial regulator here actually lowered some capital buffer requirements for banks to help them get through this and help them keep lending to the economy. So is that something that we could see in the U.S.? It's possible. We, they've taken two or they floated two approaches to this. This is kind of the supervisory angle. When we think about Fed intervention, there is direct intervention in markets through open market operations. That's the, the purchase program that you described and also offering repo at a below market price. Uh, there's facilities that are temporary emergency facilities like the commercial paper funding facility and the, the various other acronyms that I won't you know, do a laundry list of that right now, but, <laughs> but lots of 2008 vintage type stuff which are really about providing a buyer of last resort for various assets, at least on a temporary basis. And then you also have these supervisory solutions, which are to say, the, we need to change the incentives and the costs that we assess banks 
to enable them to perform their function more efficiently, particularly under these circumstances. So in that statement, uh, I, I don't even remember <laughs> what it was at this point, but there, there was floated the idea that we need to reassess capital and liquidity requirements and they dropped required reserves to zero and things like that. So it's certainly under consideration. It's a lot easier to intervene in markets than it is to change bank regulations simply because regulations create all kinds of different incentives. And in principle, you could you could pretty rapidly change that incentive structure, but you want to be careful about it in a couple of ways. The first is uh, one of the things they mentioned was reducing liquidity requirements. So banks, as a consequence of this liquidity coverage ratio rule, are required to hold high, high quality liquid assets uh, in a certain amount to cover potential outflows. So what the, what the regulators do is they say, this kind of liability has this kind of run risk and this kind of liability has this kind of run risk. And we go through the bank balance sheet on the liability side and we say, you need to be able to cover your 30 day stressed outflows with what we deem to be high quality liquid assets, which are functionally just treasuries and cash for the most part. Um, so in principle, what they could say is to banks, you can just hold less of those liquid assets. We kind of told you to hold liquidity for precisely this situation, right? You're, you're facing a demand for cash. You have high quality liquid assets that you're supposed to be able to monetize at a reasonable cost. And so why don't you just sell those assets and fund whatever uh, draws on your cash you need? That, that was the point of this thing in the first place. The issue is this particular crisis is localized to the high quality liquid asset market. So large scale sales of high quality liquid assets, particularly treasuries, to fund draws on credit facilities are just going to make the problem worse. So that's not necessarily the right supervisory solution. The other thing you could do is you could say, well, remember when we said all assets count towards your leverage? Well, now cash and treasuries don't. So, so those are no longer contributors to your leverage because they are risk-free and therefore you can intermediate as much as you want and you won't incur balance sheet cost. Um, that's a big change to how banks do business. And you know, it's it's something people have talked about. We we don't have a sense of whether or not that's likely, but that's that's one thing under consideration. And I guess the last way to think about it is with these facilities, they can get special treatment under regulation. So the money market liquidity funding facility that you mentioned earlier, that's to provide secondary market support for sales of short-term credit instruments. So if a prime fund is facing redemptions, they need to sell commercial paper to fund them or to maintain their liquidity requirements. Dealers need to be able to both purchase those, hold them on their balance sheet, and finance them. And what the Fed has done is they provided this facility to offer funding. So they, they take as collateral assets sold by prime money market funds, preferentially, and they offer cash for that. And they carve that out of existing regulations. So they said, this doesn't count towards your leverage. This doesn't count towards your risk-based capital. So through these emergency facilities, you can, you can offer sort of preferential treatment that lets the firebreaks work more effectively without changing the whole incentive structure of bank regulations. How much have what we or have what we've seen so far in terms of the response to the crisis, as well as the fact that the crisis has not uh, effect, infected the core uh, banks particularly much, a sort of vindication in your view of the system, the regulations that were passed by Congress in the wake of the Great Financial Crisis and the facilities that Ben Bernanke and others built at the Fed during it? So the way I think about it is what we're facing here 
is a cash shortage in the real economy. So if you, are, if you don't have enough cash and the sole producer of cash, namely the Fed, can simply produce more cash, like that should really solve the problem. So you're going to see a lot of volatility in the meantime because the demand for cash and the creation of cash will be offset in timing. Like you, sometimes the Fed will offer a certain amount of cash and the market actually needs more than that. So you'll see more stress. But over time, if you average that over the next few months, uh, this is a problem the Fed can solve. So it's less about the, the existence of credit products that were much riskier than they were thought to be. That was the issue in 2008. Right now, it's just a demand for cash that can't be met by the markets themselves for a variety of reasons. But the Fed can solve that. So I think it's a vindication of a bunch of things, One, but the most important being the willingness of the Fed to provide liquidity in these kinds of episodes to avoid the fire sale of money good assets, like things like treasuries, you're going right. to get your principal back. It, but it's simply a matter of piping it through the right plumbing and, and the Fed can help alleviate those stressors. And in doing so, they can avoid bigger liquidity issues turning into credit events. Because the, the issue is we don't have a credit problem necessarily right now, at least at the scale of the economy. But if capital markets are shut and there's no access to cash and there's still a need for it, especially if we're going to shut down the economy for a couple of months, and the Fed is not providing that cash, then you know, then it could turn into something much more sort of deep within the financial system. Mm. I guess the trade-off of uh, constraining bank balance sheets so that they can withstand this kind of thing is that it means that you have to rely on the Fed a little bit more to provide that sort of um, last stop liquidity. Um, just on that note, Josh, I, you've been writing about this for a long time. In fact, I think this week you published like a five-part series on uh, the Fed's emergency measures and how those are playing out in the U.S. Treasury market. Just to sum it all up, how long do you expect these stresses to continue? It, it's really hard to say. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a few weeks, simply because the size of the position that ultimately might be unwound is quite large and it has to go through a relatively narrow pipe. And that's if we keep it isolated to that futures basis trade. And it's obviously uh, gone into other areas as well uh, at this point. But you know, over a few weeks to a couple of months, like the Fed should be able to manage this process. I think the thing to keep in mind is that, at least from my perspective, Fed intervention is not about making things normal. Right. Again. It's about avoiding the more catastrophic outcomes. So the Fed is not supposed to intervene and make everything look like it did six months ago when liquidity was bountiful and markets were trading very liquidly with zero transaction costs in some cases and like very large size and it was easy to do anything and so forth. Like that's not the Fed's mandate. They're, they're supposed to be an emergency, a crisis manager. And in that sense, I think they'll get control of the situation reasonably quickly. They already have to some extent, at least in the, the futures market where things have really been, been uh, most acute. There are some incremental issues there. Margin requirements going up in futures is one of them, which exacerbates the problem. But fundamentally, that situation, I think, is mostly at least under control in the sense that it's unlikely to accelerate in a bad way. I mean, if the real economy side of the situation continues to deteriorate at the speed uh, that we've seen, then the number of any sort of uh, credit needing institutions, including companies that right now today might be considered high grade and high quality or investment grade 
could in theory continue to deteriorate. And so a company who, okay, we can issue them commercial paper because it's high quality, we don't have to worry about their credit worthiness. Eventually the economic degradation could limit anyone from really being able to make cash flows if other things don't stabilize. Does that eventually become a problem that essentially the Fed can't get under control if they start to, whether it's municipal markets, companies, et cetera, where we start to see a real problem where we doubt anyone's ability to uh, make their payments? Oh, totally. I mean, if, if things keep going at the pace they've been going, we're going to have big credit problems. But th there's something fundamentally different about this recession than prior recessions, and especially 2008. And, and the key here is that the it's a totally exogenous event. So this is not about companies that appear to be viable enterprises that were actually inviable and we just didn't realize it. And it's not actually a reasonable business model. And those companies have to go. It's creative destruction. It's just happening too quickly. This is not that. This is a pure stoppage and it's a liquidity issue. So if you have a, a company that would otherwise be a going concern uh, under normal circumstances and you just stop the economy for three months, the Fed can bridge that gap right. and the government can bridge that gap under the assumption that when everybody leaves their houses, the world is not as it was, but at least it's, it's reasonably similar. It resembles it. Yeah. And so if that's the case, it's really literally a liquidity issue. And that's precisely the kind of thing the Fed can solve. If the interventions are structured in a way that doesn't necessarily solve the core problem or are otherwise too small or delayed, you could end up with real credit problems as liquidity becomes credit stress. The Fed has clearly shown a couple of things. One is they're willing to act in size at a minimum. When you, when you have open-ended purchase operations, they're going to buy more than $600 billion for the Treasury this week. So this is a massive pace of intervention. There's $5 trillion of liquidity through repo operations. They're talking about a small business lending facility that could reach $4 trillion. Like they're, they're talking about really big numbers. So I don't think right. size is an issue here. Uh, the... The, st the structuring of these programs is something they've been quite dynamic about. So the, the commercial paper funding facility announced last week, price was too high. They brought it down this week. They went from 200 over OIS rates or 200 over Fed funds to 100, 110 over. So they're, they're willing to adjust the scope and, and the pricing of these programs to make sure they're effective and they're willing to roll out new things. And this money market liquidity funding facility was, was, uh, was the new thing. So uh, it resembled something else, but it, it still was a new thing. So uh, as long as they are being creative and being big and being timely, uh, it should be something that can be kept under control. The risk is always that the the longer term economic consequences of an event right. of this magnitude are, are very hard to have a sense of. We don't have a lot of examples of that. No. Josh, that was an absolutely fascinating conversation. We really appreciate uh, both your research and you coming on to have this conversation. Finally, um, we were able to have you. So thank you so much. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been fun. All right. Thanks, Josh. So, Joe, you can probably tell I really enjoyed that conversation. I love digging into this, you know, treasury basis trade uh, because it's one of those things that not many people were looking at or writing about, except 
and please allow me this one small victory lap. I love that something that had the potential to blow up uh, is kind of doing so in an expected way. But, you know, again, the, the big deal when it comes to the U.S. Treasury market is that it's not supposed to be a risky market. You're not supposed right. to get these big sell-off events and this type of volatility. And yet that's what we've just seen. One day we'll do an episode where it was something I was writing about a few years ago and it all happens, <laughs> but I don't know what that's going to be. I thought he was great because I thought that was, uh, yeah, something like that. Maybe when the coin finally gets minted, uh, we'll do an episode <laughs> on that. Two things. One, his, his explanation of like what these uh, futures, treasuries, basis trades are, are incredibly clear and simple. And I appreciate that. Also, like I, I have to say, I just sort of appreciated his calm demeanor at this time because, uh, you know, this is a crazy <laughs> time. He was probably the most chill, relaxed, clear person I've talked to in a while. So I really uh, I really appreciated that as well. Yeah. And his point about the perception of operational risk, I think, is another one of those yeah. things that doesn't necessarily make it into models of how the no. financial system works. Like people think that banks are always going to be there to sponsor repo trades and intermediate the financial system. But as we've seen time and time again in a big crisis, there are times when you know, like in 2008, people just didn't pick up the phone because they were scared and they didn't know what to do. And now in 2020, people possibly aren't picking up, up the phone because they're all working from home and right. uh, I don't know, their phones run, run out of batteries or they don't hear it or whatever. And that type of real world quirk, I think, is really important to consider. Totally. And I think it's something that, you know, I've learned a lot about from some of our episodes with uh Chris White talking about mm. how the bond market works. And I sort of I'm always interested in this topic that so much of our financial markets operates this way, whether it's through a chat room. Hopefully they're using Bloomberg IB plugging that or a picking up the phone <laughs> that, you know, people have this idea that the all of our financial markets, it's just robots and algorithms out there and everyone can just go right. home and actually, for the most important things, including like finding liquidity to buy the most safe asset in the world, that's still done by phone is a really striking fact. And it helps me understand some of the dislocations and breakdowns and correlations that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Yes, indeed. So this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts on Twitter, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of the Bloomberg podcasts under the handle at podcast. Thanks for listening. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. 
Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.